Hello and welcome to Talking Additive, episode 36. Our belief is that we're moving into a world where everything is touched by 3D printing, but not where everything is 3D printed. And that for us is the important distinction that we're trying to make. More on this and other topics on Talking Additive. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business leaders, innovators, and allies to discuss the impact of adopting 3D printing in their businesses. How does adopting additive manufacturing positively benefit a business today? How is the role of 3D printing evolving within design, manufacturing, education, and our lives? And what will be possible in the future? Welcome to the 36th episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays. Our first guest today is Alex Smilansky, co-founder and CEO of Meku. Hi, Alex. Thank you so much for joining Talking Additive today. It's a pleasure to have you on. It's great to be here, Matt. Lovely to see you again. So why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, I'm Alex. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Meku. Okay. Let's start with something I ask all of our guests. Tell me the story of how you first encountered 3D printing. It's an interesting one. And you, you asked me this and I was thinking about it. And, and really for me, I feel like I've encountered 3D printing more than once for the first time, if that makes sense. I kind of encountered it first as an idea, really via Star Trek, watching as a kid and seeing this incredible machine that could develop products, things, food, anything out of thin air with the replicator. And it sowed this notion in my head that you could digitally assemble particles to create something useful. And then that kind of was there. And I think it was really in the consciousness in a way that sort of laid the foundations for this kind of movement. And that's really the second time that I feel I kind of encountered it was via the RepRap movement. Um, when I was kind of emerging into my career as an industrial designer, and sort of seeing this bubble up, it was super exciting, this idea that machines that were once science fiction are now starting to become accessible. And then eventually, just as a tool in, in my job as an industrial designer, really using 3D printers for prototyping and being able to get ideas through to the point where we're confident that they're ready to be manufactured so that we could progress into uh, design for manufacture and design for production. So it's woven in and out of my life many times, 3D printing. I can't help but loving the ways in which 3D printing is now playing a role in all of the other technologies that you work with today. So let's talk about what drove you to start Meku. Well, I guess Ben, my business partner and I, we both share a belief that everybody should have access to the tools needed to make things. And that we believe that when you put tools in the hands of people, directly into the hands of people, you liberate creativity, you liberate ideas, and that has the power to change things in ways that are completely unimaginable. And we've seen this with computing. We've seen this with photography. We've seen it with music production. You know, now we have entire recording studios. Like what we're doing here once would have taken an entire room with maybe one or two technicians to do. And so this push to democratize tools is something that's very close to both Ben and my hearts and, and beliefs. And then really what we think is quite interesting is looking at mass production, something that we've both been very involved with in our, in our professional careers. 
and thinking about where that came from. And the thing that for me is quite interesting about it is that in a way, mass production itself was started with a sort of democratic notion, but really focusing on price. It was kind of this idea that if we can make things in very, very large quantities in as close to an automated way as possible, what if we can provide people with access to things that they otherwise would never have been able to afford? And that's really what's been going on since the Industrial Revolution. But I think it kind of, it, in some ways, has got a little out of hand, um, which is that now we're living in a world where things are made by a very small subset of people. They're limited to things that can be mass-produced. The things that we use every day are not made locally. And then the process of creating things is not accessible to most people. And that puts a whole load of limitations on the kinds of things that everybody gets to use. And so for us, it was this founding principle of Maker was, what if we could make manufacturing local, simple, and accessible to anyone? What if we could enable independent creators, but also manufacturers themselves, to be more nimble and, and take on less risk when they bring products out of their imaginal space and into the physical world. And that's kind of our mission is to help accelerate that transition to a sort of globally connected local manufacturing uh, where we can make what is needed where it's needed, where we can put production right next to demand. <laughs> uh, that's an amazing philosophy. And it's really exciting seeing ways that you've interpreted that in the products that you've chosen to develop and in the ways that you're introducing these technologies. So um, considering that, um, you and Ben started this project out, let's say more humbly than where you are now. What has it been like going from just like the two of you to a full team with multiple product lines and your eyes on future technologies to tackle? Yeah, it's been a journey. I think to kind of just give you the potted history, where we both kind of came from. So I was working in, in an innovation consultancy. I studied design and engineering, and, and we were working on products that really wouldn't see the market for five to seven years. Ben and I met working together at a digital agency. So we were kind of two hardware guys in a digital agency filled with software developers and strategists and product managers. And we, we entered this space where we were working on digital products and the thing that was remarkable for me in this place was that we were coming up with ideas on a Monday, and then two weeks later, we had people using working products that we'd built. And then because the development cycle was so short, because we could launch and update this digital product, and then somebody would be able to use it instantly, and we could have 10 users, or we could have 100 users, or we could have 1,000 users, we were moving so fast, and we were learning so much about what the product needed to do because we were building it in sort of dialogue with our users. And for me, this was such a stark contrast to where I was before in the world of physical product development, where we were coming up with an idea on a Monday. Um, and then many years later, many millions of pounds later, and with warehouses now filled with stock, we would get product into the hands of real paying customers. And only then we would really find out that okay, we could use testing, but now that it's in the real world, the product needs to evolve. And we've understood that. And then there's this huge development cycle 
that has to start again. And so I was really energized by the speed that we were moving in this digital world. And Ben was in China putting a product into manufacturing. And he came back and he said, this amazing technology of 3D printing that is growing and gathering speed is really just the beginning. What about all the other machines, right? What about vacuum forming, pressure forming, injection molding, rotational molding? What about the tools of mass production? What if we could democratize all of those and build a sort of desktop factory and, and create the speed, agility, and, and lack of sort of upfront cost that we've experienced with desktop computer, but bring that to the desktop factory. Um, and so that was really the, the founding principle of it. And we began with almost no money <laughs> and, and we, we sort of said, look, well, let's, let's do what we've learned how to do at Mint Digital. That was the agency we're working at, which is test the product, right? What we need is a small market. We need a small group of users that we can get machines into the hands of, that we can then evolve the business off the back of that early customer base. And so we, we set about building uh, a very simple, accessible, easy to use vacuum former, which we knew had so much potential for creators who wanted to do small production runs. And we made a prototype of it. We got a manufacturing facility in Wales that could do small runs within folded steel. And we launched a Kickstarter campaign. I'm sure everyone listening to this is familiar with Kickstarter. Um, it really, it's a platform that enabled us to take pre-orders. So with, with very little upfront investment, we were able to get people to front some cash for a machine that we could then go and build. And we thought if we could get a hundred people to buy one of these things, that would be incredible because then we have a small customer base and we can evolve the business from there. We launched it and within a month we had 1300 orders for our machine. And we had, we went from being two guys in a basement of a maker space to two guys in a basement of a maker space with 1300 customers and 600 grand in the bank. Um, and really that was, that was felt like day one. And so from there, we brought on some investors that had a lot of experience that could bring a wealth of knowledge to the table. We scaled up our manufacturing facility. We evolved the product to a point where it was really ready for the market. And we brought it to market in, in 2018. And over the first couple of years, we, we grew a customer base of you know, more than 10,000 creators from independent chocolate makers to medical labs, to industrial designers, and even educators and researchers using it to do all sorts of things from making mycelium molds to creating N95 masks during the pandemic when supplies were short. So it's been a phenomenal journey. And now, you know, we've got a team of 20. We've got people across R&D, marketing, sales, supply chain, customer success, finance, operations. And it's, it's been so exciting to bring such a wealth of talent in to really build towards our long-term vision. Um, and, and people who have, have a depth of experience within additive as well to really integrate with, with the emerging ecosystem that we're seeing within that world. So yeah, it's, it's been exciting and it's in a way we're only really just getting started. Okay. Let's go back to talk about the technologies 
that were the ones where you started in your vision of taking on industrial manufacturing processes and finding accessible desktop versions. You started with thermoforming and picked vacuforming and pressure forming technologies. Why did you target this family of technologies and what were the first steps to make this an accessible technology? Sure. So for us, we're really interested in tools that can make copies of things very, very quickly. So we're, we're looking at that process of scaling up. So let's say you want to make a product and you want to make 10,000 of them or a million of them. We would recommend that you go and get a mass production facility and you, you spend a bunch of money getting tooling in place and you spend you know, 12 months getting production set up and get that ready. Or let's say that you want to make just one or you want to make 10, but every single one is different. Then really 3D printing is magic or even other processes that are digitally enabled or, or even more artisanal processes. What we're interested in is what happens when you want to make dozens of copies or hundreds of copies of exactly the same thing. And you want to do it with a really low cost per part. And you want to do it within the space of a few hours or within a day. Those are the technologies we're interested in. And thermoforming as a category is, is something that's widely used in, in industry. It's used for creating medical devices, packaging, molds, card dashboards, shells for short run products, even in, in production lines. Um, it's used to make short runs very quickly. So it's this incredible process that can empower people to scale up from, from one to 100 or 1000 units with no lead time and no minimum order quantity. So that's why we were really interested in it. Um, we started with vacuum forming because it's the most accessible of the two thermoforming technologies that we look at, vacuum forming and pressure forming. Um, and it meant that we could build a product that was built to a very, very high level with not a huge amount of capital investment. And we could bring this process down to a size and a price that meant it was accessible to a huge part of the market that it never had been accessible to before. And we really focused it on creators. So businesses where it's an individual, it's their business, and they're making things themselves and they're selling them maybe online, maybe on Etsy, maybe in, in craft stores, and also education, and really looking at the creators, looking at the people who are going to be shaping the manufacturing of the future and bringing it into an educational context, and really taking a product that before would have been at a minimum £3,000, um, or you know, sort of $3,500, and bringing it down to a $700 price point. And so that's, that's what we did with the form box. We've now looked into pressure forming. Now, pressure forming enables an order of magnitude more detail than vacuum forming. It's an industrial process that's used when you need an injection mold level of precision, or you need to work with very advanced, very thick, robust materials, and you need to do it in low volumes, and you need to do it with a very low tooling cost with a very short lead time. So it's a really powerful process and an industrial pressure former could be anywhere from hundred grand plus. There are no desktop pressure formers on the market other than the very small dental units that you see used. And so we wanted to bring this powerful industrial technology to the desktop for the first time and make it accessible 
to manufacturers, businesses, creators, educators, anybody who wants to do injection mold quality very, very quickly, very, very low cost. That's why we, we decided to focus on pressure forming. And for us, we're really interested in how 3D printing can be extended with powerful technologies like thermoformats and maybe others in the future. Our belief is that we're moving into a world where everything is touched by 3D printing, but not where everything is 3D printed. And that for us is the important distinction that we're trying to make. That distinction seems like an apt one. I mean, even speaking with my hardware OEM hat on, we've been seeing how the biggest growth in 3D printing technology lately is in how it is now used in many more industrial processes, not necessarily as a component of the part being produced, but in an assistive role in producing key components or or bringing the final assembly together or moving things around in the facility. Like that is where uh, the action is. So this is something that audiences here at Talking Additive increasingly understand as we have been talking to manufacturers, designers, engineers, and um, managers about how using 3D printing for jigs and fixtures is, uh, is really transforming stuff. But also before we move on, would you describe what the steps are in vacuum forming and pressure forming as a means to help differentiate them? How are these processes different from each other? Yeah, sure thing. So let's start with vacuum forming. It's a very simple process, actually. So what, what's going on is you're warming up a sheet of thermoplastic. What that does is it brings it very, very close to a molten state. It takes to the glass transition temperature. So you, you have it sort of suspended in that state and, and you drape it over a pattern or you could call it a template, which is the, the thing that you want to replicate. Now, often we see people 3D printing those, but they can be made by hand. They can be CNC. They can be laser cut. You just need one sort of master template that you'd like to copy. And what happens is this, this softened sheet of plastic it draped over the template and then underneath a vacuum is created and that what that does is it essentially pulls the molten sheet over the template um, by exerting one atmosphere of pressure which creates the equivalent of about one ton of force or, or six pounds per square inch and that then set very hard so it, it cools and then sets hard, and then you can remove it basically instantly. So you, you have this template that might have taken, you know, 10 hours to print or, you know, a day to make. And then within a couple of minutes, you've copied it. And now you have this shell, which is very rigid. Um, and depending on what kind of material it is, it could be flexible um, or transparent. And then you can take that and you can use it in one of two ways. You can fill it with a liquid as a mold, and then you can make multiple copies of that original master template out of resin or concrete or ceramics or even food. Or you can then cut it out either by hand or with a CNC milling machine, and then you have a part. And so you can make molds or parts very rapidly. So you can essentially multiply your, your original form dozens and dozens and dozens of times with a very high degree of accuracy and consistency out of sort of production grade materials. Now that's vacuum forming. Pressure forming is similar, but a little bit different. So with pressure forming, 
you're still you're heating up a sheet of thermoplastic to this kind of glass transition temperature that's very very soft and then you're draping it over the template but now rather than taking a vacuum and sucking all the air out from underneath it you're pressurizing tanks of air and then dumping all of that pressurized air up above the sheet within a closed dome so you're able to exert much, much more force. You've now got four atmospheres of pressure. Um, and that means that you can get an order of magnitude more detail. It's also a closed, controlled environment. So you can keep the material in a sort of semi-molten state for longer. You can keep the pressure on for longer if you want to. Um, we think you can even use it as an autoclave if you want to make sort of carbon fiber parts. That's an experimental process we haven't quite cracked yet, but we believe it's, it's possible. And it just means that you have a lot more control over the, the end result. And also you can just work with more materials and do more. So you can work with materials that go all the way up to eight millimeters thick. You can work with a really broad range of thermoplastics uh, and you can get details that go down finer than a human hair. You know, we're talking 0.0004 millimeters level of precision and create sort of material finishes that rival injection molding. That's impressive. Um, thank you for taking those extra steps uh, for our listeners, but also because I wanted to make sure that I had it clear in my mind as well. Now, uh, you had mentioned when setting the stage for the kinds of challenges that you take on, that you have other industrial processes on your mind as well. Um, are there other fabrication technologies in the wings that you're working on? Or can you just not say? We definitely have ideas. We even have an unreleased machine in our lab that we've never, we've never launched. We are very interested in other technologies. We're constantly experimenting with them. It's definitely too soon to say. But what I can say is that everything we do focuses on this 1 to 1,000 volume range. Uh, we're, we're looking at integrating deeply with 3D printing and existing desktop manufacturing workflows. Um, and that's really where a lot of our focus is over the next few years is building a manufacturing platform, which integrates with the existing install base of 3D printing so that we can enable people to access, you know, mass manufacturing workflows, but on the desktop. Okay, great. Well, <laughs> consider me well teased. Speaking of your products, let's now take a deeper dive into the products that you offer, and especially to chart their evolution, such as the, the form box from the original crowdfunding version to the version of today. Uh, and you've also added other components that are not hardware, like materials, the software training platforms, etc. So speaking as a whole, like what does Meku offer today? Yeah. So for us, the product is the combination of different things, different tools, software, and materials. And so for us, our product is a suite of things that come together. So to give you an example, the form box, I mean, initially it was a folded sheet, bent steel, hunk of metal made in um, very, very low volumes. Now it's a super slick, really easy to use straight out of the box. Um, desktop vacuum former that rivals industrial processes in terms of the quality it can achieve. But also, it's a software platform um, that we've built 
really specifically for education, because that's where we've seen the form box really thrive is in an educational context, because it gives students access to a hands-on making experience that they can use. Um, you know, it used to be that with the big vacuum formers that you'd find in the lucky schools that could afford them, you'd have to have kids kind of queuing up so that the technician could use it. Now what we're seeing is that teachers are getting one on each table and we have groups of kids working with it. And you see their ideas go straight from their minds into the world and, and it allows them to to build on some of the existing foundations that they've learned through design, technology, and also the sort of 3D printing curriculum that's emerging um, and extend it to actually making their own real products. So we built a platform called Make You Teach, which has been built with a, a network of teachers across the world to create curriculums specifically designed for the form box and also a place where teachers can engage and collaborate with each other um, and share learnings to help kind of inspire the creators of the future. We also have a creator portal where there's a wealth of learning videos, guides, templates, design considerations, everything that a creator wanting to do their own production run needs to get started um, and then ultimately succeed with the machine. So that's really the ecosystem that we've developed around the Formbox. There's also a community where our customers are connected to each other and they can talk and share and, and, and learn. Now with the multiplier, we brought it to market via a sort of pre-order campaign at the tail end of 2021. We've now got hundreds of customers. Um, the machines are, have started shipping, which is super exciting. And we've also developed what we call the Make You Academy, which is where all of the different things you need to know to successfully pressure form will live. It's a platform that will evolve to be much, much more than that. And we can talk about that in the coming months. And it's also where you can buy a range of materials through the Make You Supply Store. So it's an online platform that has the Make You Academy for learning and the Make You Supply Store where you can get materials. And the Make You Supply Store is going to be super interesting how that evolves over the next few years. Um, and what we're really looking to do is build partnerships with materials, manufacturers, but also other tool makers, um, 3D printing companies. We're building a partnership with Ultimaker at the moment. Um, we're looking to integrate the multiplier into existing workflows and enable businesses to do small runs of parts and molds that will completely change their product development cycle and enable them to make things locally with no minimum order quantities. So yeah, it's, it's exciting. Um, the product line is currently those two machines. Um, and I, I didn't mention, we also have some accessories that extend the power of our machines. Um, and we're, we're looking to expand it over the next few years. By the way, congratulations for launching the multiplier. I, I had the pleasure of seeing it before it was launched, and it is damned impressive. So <laughs> compared to the form box, especially in its sleek new version where you can just like tuck it under your arm and carry it to the next place to use it, this is uh, much larger and uh, substantially more complex of a machine with more moving parts at the very least and more requirements and definitely more shipping weight. Uh, what's the news from the first few months of this launch? Uh, how are the first customers using it? 
Yeah, it's been amazing actually seeing who's taken to it. There are some that we really expected and there were some that totally surprised us. And it was really exciting to see people say, oh, could I use it for this? So the core that we've seen is obviously parts and molds, but in, within molds, we've seen it really focused on an alternative to either silicon molding or polycarbonate molding. So silicon molding really is used across different industries, whether that's prop making, industrial design, craft, food, to do sort of rapid production. And then polycarbonate molding really focused on the, the food industry. You know, we've seen like Nestle get involved um, because now they can reduce their lead time from months to minutes. And we've also seen small independent chocolatiers getting involved with it. But those mold applications for us are really only the beginning because it's the parts that we've started to see that have been really inspiring. So there's the basics. Transparent parts is a huge one because it's quite difficult to make thin, strong, transparent parts with 3D printers, maybe even impossible. And, and there's a lot of applications where those are absolutely critical. Um, so whether that's packaging or light covers for lenses or housings for electronics where you need to be able to see through, um, or many, many other examples where you just need to be able to see the inside of something. The other one is solid parts. So low volume production runs where you need a solid, thin, lightweight part. So drone shells is something we've seen. We've seen a customer wanting to use it to develop shells for satellites going into low Earth orbit. And then there's also been a bunch of applications that have been super exciting that we, we'd never even imagined. So one of them is someone wanting to use it to make molds for carbon fiber. Because the detail is so small, we've seen microfluidics customers get the machine and want to experiment with using it for that. Um, and medical devices. So it's, it's another example of a low volume product, uh, where people want to be able to make the shells for them and then dental. So we had expected this to come. We didn't expect it to come so soon. We've had people buying the machine for use in dental because of course they already use pressure formers. Um, but the pressure formers they have are very small. And so with this 400 millimeter bed, they believe that they can increase the throughput. Um, and reduce the cost per part of aligners, whitening trays, uh, and mouth guards. Okay, so how about this? How do you expect these uses for Meku to change in the coming years? I think that for us, the markets that we're, we're seeing emerging now, sort of industrial design, innovation labs, educational institutions, and even some in, in kind of more food craft areas, I think, are really the foundation. But what's been quite interesting is seeing these emergent applications in the worlds of research, in the world sort of highly precision parts. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see how those evolve and also just get surprised by where the machine ends up because it's such a powerful process. One of the cool things that we saw with the form box is that when you make a powerful process so accessible, people's creativity then runs wild. And you, you see it being applied to applications that were never in the initial imagination. So one of them we saw with the form box was mycelium molds to grow cultures within labs in MIT. And there's all sorts of kind of examples like that that we expect to start to evolve 
over the coming years. Yeah, that sounds promising. So there's a component of this that you'd mentioned earlier when you're talking about how you think of your products in terms of um, not just hardware platform that you're making, but also the materials, the software, the training, and uh, and how it fits into the use, et cetera. So, okay, let's highlight materials for a second. What kind of materials do you currently offer? Yes. So we've, we've started with a very simple set of broadly useful materials. So we have four for the form box and three for the multiplier. So for the form box, we have the flex sheets. Um, that's an EVA thermoplastic, similar to silicon, very flexible, reusable hundreds of times to make highly precision molds that allow you to make complicated forms because they can accept undercuts. We've got the clear sheets. That's PETG. It's what plastic bottles are made of. Food safe, flexible to an extent, clear, transparent, perfectly optically clear, which is really useful for making parts, but also molds. We've then got our form sheets. They're white hips, high impact polystyrene, really for packaging, also useful for making quick molds and sort of parts really for prototyping. With the form box, we also have resin sheets. They're LDPE, low density polyethylene, um, and they're sort of have a bit of give to them, a bit of flex, but they're really great for working with resin as a casting material because they're sort of oleophobic. The resin doesn't adhere and stick to the sheet in the same way that it can do with some of the others. With the multiplier, we have those same base sheets, although at launch, we don't have the resin sheets. Um, we've already begun conversations with third-party materials providers because really we don't want to be the only maker of these sheets. What we want to do is make them accessible. We want to make the technology as useful to as many different people as possible. And so that's why we're inviting partnerships with materials providers. Um, and we're really excited to start to announce a little bit more about our materials roadmap over the coming months. Yeah, it's already been eye-opening for me as someone who has a 3D printing focus, seeing how you can use your products not only to make cool forms, uh, but also to make it possible to then immediately work with other materials that are very tricky to work with, at least as 3D printing materials by using molding and casting approaches, et cetera, um, really like widening the portfolio of materials. So it's very exciting to watch this development going forward from that perspective. Now, I want to take our discussion very selfishly, it is talking additive after all, to focus even more on 3D printing. Um, as you set the stage earlier in this discussion, you drew a lot of inspiration from the spirit of the 3D printing movement, like the RepRap movement, you know, this activity of making more accessible something that used to be very expensive and very inaccessible. But also your customers often use 3D printing in combination with your technologies. I want to talk to you about this a little bit more. Uh, can you share the ways in which 3D printing plays a role for your customers using technology that you currently offer? Absolutely. So 3D printing is a central part of the workflow for many of our customers. I'd even go as far as saying most of our customers. So I think about 60% of our customers have a 3D printer. And for them, it's really about two things. One, it's about getting confidence that the shape they want to make is the right one. So that kind of prototyping step, 
where it's really sketching in 3D. And then to make the template or the pattern that you're then forming over. Um, it's an incredible process for making those tooling because you can quickly go from a digital file to a physical part that you can then rapidly replicate. Um, and so that's really where it fits into the workflow um, is in that step. It's important to take some considerations in when designing for the process, but we can come back to that later. I would love to hear from your perspective, having grappled with these other industrial processes and having found ways to bring them to new audiences, what would you like to see from, from like a tech dev perspective coming into 3D printing itself? Mm, it's a good question. I think I've been amazed by the leaps and bounds that have been taken within 3D printing. I mean, you know, there's, there's obviously the, the FFS, the FDM technologies that have advanced to the point of being um, the desktop versions starting to rival the industrial versions. We've also seen kind of SLS made accessible, SLA, of course. And then within the industrial sector, there's, you know, binder jet technologies and technologies that are, are enabling highly precise um, products to be made with, with a broad range of CMFs. So I think that the technology is advancing and I think it continues to advance even with things like organ printing. What I think could evolve is the sort of view to the left and to the right of 3D printing. To think, where does 3D printing fit in a desktop manufacturing workflow? So if, if what we want to do is, is enable nimble, agile, digitally enabled manufacturing, where the risk of mass production is removed, what other tools do we need? And what new workflows do we need to create? And that sort of knitting together of different processes to create one coherent workflow, I think is where the industry is evolving. And it's exciting to see that and to be a part of that. That's helpful, especially given that uh, so many of your customers are using 3D printing in other projects as well as in combination with yours. I think this puts you in the right position to share impressions you have on the shifting roles of additive manufacturing within industry today, starting with how your customers are using the technology, but then enlarging to your views on how manufacturing, engineering, design, and distribution will be using AM even more in the future. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. It's, it's exciting to see it all change. Um, and I think for me, it's about trying to understand what makes sense to be made centrally. What kind of products do we want to make in a large factory in the millions and then load up products onto boats and then ship them to warehouses and store them so that we can distribute them? And what products do we want to be making right next to where they're used so that demand can be next to supply and supply can be next to demand and that they can be much more tuned to each other so that we don't hold a lot of stock and we have very, very short lead times and very rapid product development cycles. And so that sort of future where you have local hubs where things that are used locally and made locally, um, I think is really, really interesting. And we're already starting to see that in certain worlds with certain applications. So one of the ones that is quite evolved is dental. There's been a move, particularly within aligners, from making in central locations um, and then distributing to making in labs and bringing the 
digital manufacturing workflow closer to the point of actual use or purchase within the dentist has enabled a sort of transformation in what's possible in terms of price and also in terms of service because you can offer things much faster. Um, and so that, that's quite interesting. I think that's going to happen with more and more different applications. And that's what we're sort of watching and seeing how it changes. For me, that definitely brings up the broader topic of sustainability and how manufacturing can and maybe should change. You mentioned logistics and printing in smaller quantities driven by local needs. What are other approaches to sustainability goals that you're thinking about in terms of your products and in terms of 3D printing as an enabling technology? Mm. I think two of the things that we have to do to move to a world of sustainably made products are to A, reduce the product miles. So, so things shouldn't be sort of building up a carbon footprint as they move. And B, to reuse. So to have materials that get used to make a product and then that product gets broken down and we have a closed loop where we can then make new products out of that starting product, recycling, which I'm sure all of the people listening will be very familiar with. So we need to use sustainable materials. We need to bring them into a place where they can be looping through a closed loop system. And we need to make things uh, locally so that we can not build up carbon footprint during the transportation of goods. And so I think that bringing manufacturing close to the point of the demand is part of that. We use 100% recycled materials where possible. As one of our materials, the flex sheets where that's not possible uh, because the feedstock doesn't exist yet, but it is recyclable. So we use recyclable materials um, and we use recycled materials where possible. And what we're really interested in the medium term is to look at that closed loop side of it and think, how can we actually enable the materials that we supply to also be made out of locally recycled products? Because that also makes recycling more viable. Because one, one of the challenges, which I'm sure a lot of the people listening will be familiar with recycling, is that given the way that it's done, it's often not viable to recycle plastic because it has to be shipped somewhere before it can then be recycled and turned into new, new materials. So if we can do that um, more you know, in a more automated fashion, and if we can do that um, much more locally, it can start to become more viable to, to actually recycle materials and, and reuse them. Uh, yeah, it does sound like there are real opportunities here. And I was wondering if you might also talk about some of the things your customers are producing using your processes that in the past um, would have been a lot messier, would have required more tooling, lead to more waste, subtractive processes. So what are some of the things that they're producing with your products that are already reducing carbon footprint? Mm. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a kind of, I don't know if anyone's come across this listening, but there's Plastic Smoothie. There's an amazing organization called Precious Plastics that has really focused on, on taking local plastic waste and then they've built this kind of open source range of um, production machines where they can shred it down, turn it into feedstock, and then manufacture new products out of it. It's awesome. They're such a cool organization. But then also kind of in line with that, there's all these guides, there's all these open source guides about um, ways of making new materials out of plastic. And one of them is plastic smoothie. And we've seen customers using recycled plastic sheets that they've made themselves to make products that then they can go on and sell. So they're, they're taking waste and turning it into a business. 
um, and also giving that material a new life. We've also saw during the pandemic, people making KN95 masks across sub-Saharan Africa where they couldn't get supplies. We open sourced a guide that enabled people to do this locally. And all of the sheets were made out of recycled plastic bottles. Um, so they're, they're, they, were, they were making PPE during the pandemic out of old plastic bottles. So that was, that was quite exciting to see. Now, something I hear frequently from listeners and customers alike is their interest in the overlap between 3D printing and food. You have a lot of customers who are already doing this, uh, doing work with your products to create things that are food, especially chocolate. Uh, do you want to share some of the ways your products are being used to enable creativity with edible products? Mm. Yeah, so we, we've got everything from you know, independent chocolatiers that you know, run their own chocolate shop all the way through to companies like Nestle, uh, Harrods, and big hotel chains that use the form box and now the multiplier to make food molds. Um, and that's used as an alternative to polycarbonate molding, which typically costs 4,000 pounds to set up production. And then typically you have to invest a few thousand pounds in the first run because there's a minimum order quantity and the process can take months. So for them, they're now able to do custom molds within a day for a few pounds and there's no minimum order quantity. They can make one or they can make 100. Um, and we've, we've also seen that used for desserts by pastry chefs, but then also kind of in the R&D side of the F&B industry. So Nestle buying a machine um, and they want to use it for all different kinds of molds for, for foods as diverse as frozen foods and, and solid foods like chocolate. Okay. So given that you have so many customers using 3D printing in their processes, I was wondering if you might share some tips and tricks to talking out of listeners to help orient them in the ways that they can use these kinds of technologies in their work. So like any manufacturing process, thermoforming has limitations. Um, there are things that it's great at and there are things that it's not so great at. And so it's really important to understand the design guidelines. Just like with 3D printing, there are specific ways to design your template to make sure that you get a great form or a great mold. And we have the Make You Academy specifically built to help with that. So on there, there's getting started videos, there's specific application-based guides, um, and there's all of the kind of details that you might need to understand how to succeed. We also have a team of customer success people here who are there to help you succeed if you have specific questions that aren't answered. And we have a community of creators, designers, engineers um, that are there to help each other in our forums. So yeah, this, it's, it's really important to understand what, it, what the design guidelines are um, in order to succeed. Fantastic. And I will definitely be looking into those resources myself so that I can create some experiments with your products as well. Really looking forward to that, actually. So, Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Talking Out of today. Awesome. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm a big fan of Talking Out of, so it's been great to be on the show myself. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thank you again to Alex Milansky, co-founder and CEO of Meku, for joining us today. We hope that you have enjoyed our 36th episode for the Talking Additive podcast. If you have questions about any topics covered during this episode of Talking Additive, we invite you to post on Twitter or LinkedIn to hashtag Talking Additive, all one word. Talking Additive launches new episodes each Tuesday. 
Next week, join us to meet Robert Joyce, founder of FiberTuff. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the conversation by signing up for news and announcements at talkingadditive.com. Thank you again to Alex and the Meku team. Our episode editor is Paul Pontius of PGP Sound. Our series producer is Hanna Gabrielle Takini, studio manager David Roberson. Music and sound mix by Brian Scarry and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbirds Custom Music and Sound. I am host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you for listening. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.